Thank you. Well, it's my privilege to introduce to you this morning, Karish Kandai. He is an author, he is an academic, and he is an activist. He has authored over 10 books, including the award-winning Paradoxology. He's got a new book, God is Stranger, and you can pick up copies of that today. He is an academic. He is on faculty at Regents in Vancouver. That's why he's here in the Pacific Northwest this week. He is a doctoral supervisor down in Portland at George Fox. He was the president of the London School of Theology, which is where I did my seminary training. And, uh, and previous to that, he was the director of the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, which was where myself and Michael Balterza did uh, a year of apologetics training. He is lastly an activist, and this is probably what you're going to hear more of this morning. Uh, he was a one-time executive director of the Evangelical Alliance, which is the oldest and largest body representing UK evangelicals, a really significant organization in the UK. He's an honorary vice president at Tear Fund, which is a UK Christian relief and development agency. They actually started Cambodian Hope Organization, who we partner with in Cambodia. And he is the founding director of Home for Good, I think this is his, his biggest passion. It's an adoption and fostering charity. It is a real privilege to have Chris with us this morning. So would you welcome him to Chapel Hill? Thank you. Thank you, Ellis. Good morning, everybody. It's a lovely privilege to be with you. Um, it's my first time to travel to the United States with my daughter, and uh, it was wonderful that you made us feel so welcome by putting out so many flags so that we'd feel just that it was just for us. That was so kind. And uh, no, I know it was Independence Day, so I'm kind of mixed in my feelings as an Englishman uh, being here. But thank you. You've been uh, lovely and you're welcome. And thank you to um, uh, Pastor Mark, Pastor Ellis, and... Um, uh, Julie Hawkins has been wonderful. A little gift package arrived for us as uh, we're staying uh, with Rich and Sandy. And it's just been a lovely time. So thank you very much. Uh, I feel a lot of warmth from you guys. Um, and I might upset that a little bit uh, this morning uh, with an image I'm going to show you. Uh, this image has caused fights between all sorts of people. Uh, and Pastor Mark thought I was pulling his leg when I said that different people see something strange when they see this image. So could you put... Could you put the image of the dress up? Um, is that possible? I want you to have a look at this. Okay. Some of you know this image already. What color is the dress? Just have a little chat with your neighbor uh, to see what they see. Could you do that? Just have a little chat. If you don't know your neighbor, say hello. What color is the dress? So this is a product image that comes from Amazon. They're selling a dress. It's a user-generated piece of uh, information. And uh, let's try section A. Um, some of the young people, what, what color do you see? What? White and gold. White and gold. Okay. Hands up if you see white and gold. Yeah, interesting. Hands up if you see something different. What do you guys see? Blue and black. Hands up if you see blue and black. All right. Does anyone else see anything different? Is that white and gold and blue? Blue and black. White and brown. I'm going to give brown the gold. I think it, it could just be nice about it. Um, 
so I'd love, I'd love to say to you that if you see white and gold, it's probably because you're Episcopal or Anglican. And uh, they tend to see dresses and crowns everywhere, don't they? And if you see blue and black, it's because you're Baptist like me. And uh, you see water where other people don't. Uh, but it doesn't work like that. It's not based on where you're sat. It's not based on what denomination you are. It's based on something else. I was um, at the opticians not long ago. And um, because I'm English, I really don't like it when people invade my personal space. I like my space. And uh, the optician had, had, was right in my face. And she'd been eating oranges. And I could smell them on her breath. And I thought, this is too much. So I got my phone out. And I asked her to look at this picture. That bought me some personal space because she couldn't come any closer. And she told me um, that this is a phenomenon due to the way that your brain processes colour. It may be linked to the unequal distribution of rods and cones on your retina. Okay? You can look it up, see if, which uh, theory you like best. But for me, this picture is a really interesting picture of what it means to be a Christian. You see, you and your um, friends, maybe your non-Christian friends or colleagues or classmates uh, or even family, we are all looking at the same challenges in life. We're looking at the same community that we live in. We're looking at the same world and and the opportunities and challenges that are there in our world. And yet, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, because of the gospel, your mind is being renewed. And so you no longer look at the world in the way that you used to since you've become a Christian. Because becoming a Christian doesn't just change what you do here in this building. It doesn't just change what you do with 10% of your money or 10% of your time. Becoming a Christian changes everything. It's a systemic shift. Everything is different now. You can't approach the world the same way. So I want you to apply That understanding, maybe you call it theology, maybe you call it Bible teaching. I want you to apply that to another picture. Could you pick up, put up my picture? This is Robert. I can't show you Robert's face because Robert's currently in foster care. And so we need to protect his identity. Robert has been in foster care for most of his life. He was removed from his parents and he's been waiting to be adopted. He's completely available for adoption right now and for the right person to come forward. He's longing for a family. And Robert's in a little book. That little book is called Be My Parent. It's a book that you're allowed to look in if you are an approved adopter. And in that book, we have a picture. You can see his face and there's a little profile. And that profile tells you about Robert. And Robert has a speech delay. And because he can't communicate in the way that he wants to, he sometimes gets a bit angry. And because he's at school now, sometimes that anger spills out into difficult behavior. And because we want people to be wide-eyed and and clear about what adoption involves, we're honest about that in the profile about him. But you know what? Thousands of people have looked at Robert's profile. And because of his learning difficulty, because he's older and not a baby... Most people coming forward to adoption really want a baby. And babies are amazing. But Robert needs adopting and he's five years old. Because of the troubles he's been through, because of the challenges in his life, people are looking at him and they're saying, he's a problem. He's a problem child. He's going to be difficult. He's going to grow up and be difficult. In fact, he's not just a problem child. He's someone else's problem child. 
and are not interested. And so they turn the page. And whether they say it out loud or just think it inside, they say Robert is unadoptable. Now, since you've become a Christian, the Holy Spirit's been working in you, the Word of God's been working in you, and so you no longer look at anything the same way that you used to. What do you see when you see Robert? What does God see when God looks at Robert? Have a little chat with your neighbour and uh, the, the first service did really well. No challenge, no competition. Actually, yes, let's have a competition. Um, I'd love you to come up with three things that you think God sees when he looks at Robert. And I'm going to come to the balcony first, so you're included. And then we're coming over here to you guys, and then we'll open it up to the rest of us. Are you ready? Have a little go. You've got 90 seconds. What does God see when he sees Robert? Okay, your time's up. Um, Someone on the balcony, go for the easy one first. What does God see when he sees Robert? Anyone up there? Nice and loud. What does... Potential. Brilliant. God definitely sees... Let's put him up again. God definitely sees potential when he sees Robert. Most people are looking at Robert and they're writing him off because of his history or because of what currently is going on in his life. But we don't believe in a God like that, do we? You know, when God first encountered us, it says we were dead in our transgressions and sins. It says that we were objects of wrath. It says we were uh, aliens and strangers to his promises. In fact, in Galatians 4, it says that we were slaves. But God didn't just see sin and brokenness. He saw someone that could be redeemed. Someone whose life could be transformed. Maybe that's your experience. Maybe you remember what you were like before you were a Christian and God has changed you. Now, don't you believe that if God has changed you, he can change anyone? That was Paul's experience in the Bible, wasn't it? If God can save me, the worst of all sinners, he can save anyone. So when God looks at Robert, he does. He sees potential of what he could become. If he were to become a follower of Jesus, if he were to allow the Holy Spirit to come in his life. Wonderful. This team over here, what you got? Yes, please. Chosen. God, God wants Robert. It isn't an accident that Robert is here. Psalm 139 says, God knit us together in our mother's wombs. Now, whether your mum or Robert's mum intended him to come into the world, wanted him to come into the world, that doesn't matter because God wanted him in the world. There are no accidental people on the planet. There's only people that God wanted to be here. Maybe you've been told something else in your life. Maybe you've been told that you weren't wanted. That isn't how God sees you. And if God sees you that way, well, why can't he see Robert that way? God is wanted by God. Great. Someone else in the wider team. What else have we got? Yes, please. God has compassion on him. Totally right. We believe, my daughter and I, we were driving down the highway uh, from Vancouver on Friday night. It was a long journey. And, uh, but someone cheered us up because on one of the bridges over the highways, they'd written a Bible verse. Can you guess which Bible verse they wrote over the highway? John 3.16 thought someone might quote it this morning. For God so loved white people. For God so loved middle class people. 
For God so loved children born into Christian families. For God so loved documented people. No. What do we believe? For God so loved the world. Every single person on this planet is loved by God. Now, not everybody has responded in love to God, for sure. We're not saying everybody is saved. But God has an intention of love towards the planet. That's the heart of the gospel. That's why everyone keeps putting it on t-shirts and turning up at soccer games and uh, American football games. They want the world to know that. For God so loved you, me, and Robert. He's loved by God. Now, I was planning to speak about um, Jochebed. She is definitely one of the best supporting cast members in the Bible. In fact, most people don't know who she is. If you're not quite sure, she's Moses' mum. And uh, she plays a pivotal role in the salvation story, in our story. Because if you're a Christian here today, the Jewish story, the the story of the nation of Israel, that's our ancestry because we've been ingrafted into the family of God. Because of what Jesus did. Even though some of us are Gentiles and some of us are Jews. We're all made one family because of what Jesus has done. And so that means the Exodus story. That's part of our heritage now. And Jochebed plays a key role. She loves her son Moses so much that she's willing to relinquish him. She has to give him away, doesn't she? She loves him to bits, but she knows because of those circumstances that she's in, she can't look after him. So many people I know speak very badly about the mothers and fathers who have relinquished their children, have had their children removed from them. But some have had to give their children away because they know their own addictions, their own problems are going to cause harm for their children. And so the most loving thing they can do is to to give them away. Now strangely in the story uh, in Exodus, um, weirdly, Jochebed and Miriam, who is Moses' sister, they become the first foster carers. Do you remember? Because they're asked to bring up Moses. They just happen to be by the river when Pharaoh's daughter comes along. We could think of some people that might be able to help you raise this child. Brilliant. So they become the first foster parents. And strangely, Moses becomes the first adopted person, doesn't he? Adopted into Pharaoh's family by his own daughter. But as I was studying the scripture, that I was hijacked. A part of the Bible really grabbed me. And I want to focus in and zoom in on another part of the story. And we're going to look at Exodus chapter 1. Two other people that play a really important role in the story of Israel. And they are definitely two of the best supporting actors that you may never have heard of. If you've got a Bible, why don't you open it up? It's page 45 if you're using this church Bible or Exodus chapter 1 verse 8. And here's the context. Do you remember the people of Israel, the Hebrews, have had to leave the promised land. And they've come to Egypt. Why have they come to Egypt? They've come to Egypt because there's been a famine. And they were so poor, they had no kind of backup, no, no grain stores. And so they come into Egypt. They have to cross a border in order to seek safety in another country. Do you know what we call those kind of people today? That's right. Our history, if you're a Christian here today, is a refugee history. 
our ancestors left their land and traveled to another country in order that they might have safety at a time of great peril. But it's okay because Joseph does a good job and he, he, he becomes a really important government official and he sorts out all their grain problems. They, they start to store some grain so that they'll be okay when the tough time comes. Do you remember the fat cows coming out of the river and the thin cows coming out of the river? Well, Joseph is in charge and he does a great job. But after a while, Pharaoh di- uh, Joseph dies and Pharaoh dies. And now it says in verse 8... Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Do you hear what's going on here? The ruling Egyptian authorities are scared to death about this immigrant population, these nasty, terrible Jewish people that are going to rise up and overthrow the, the, um, the Egyptian government. They're going to ruin this place. Come over here, take our jobs, take our women. They're going to spoil things for us. And so the Egyptian king decides on a strategy of persecution for the Jewish nation. Have a look, verse 11. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. There was a dehumanization process going on. These these Jewish people, they're not really people, they're objects. We can treat them however we want. We can force them into the most difficult and demanding jobs. In fact, even when they do well under those circumstances, we can impress them even more. This is our history. It's a history of being a minority oppressed people who have no power. But things are about to get worse. Have a look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife uh, to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, and I love their response here, listen to this. Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. They might have been a bit elastic with the truth there, mightn't they? But you can understand what drove them, can't you? They're doing something very courageous, but this seems to them to be the only way they could do what was needed. And you might think God might judge the Hebrew midwives, but look what he says. Verse 20, so God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, 
He gave them families. I love that little detail there. Can you imagine in the ancient world where not having a child was a great shame? Even today, there's a lot of social pressure. And infertility can be one of the most difficult things to live with, can't it? When the whole culture is pushing you that way. But imagine that you felt your job in life was to make sure other people could have children safely. Even though you were carrying that pain. These are exceptional women, aren't they? And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. I wish it was because Pharaoh was merciful that he let the girls live. I'm scared that he had ulterior motives in allowing the Hebrew women to live. These are difficult times. Can you imagine how hard that would have been to be a persecuted minority And then for you, with your your no power, no influence, to have the king come to visit you in your workplace. Some of you might relate to this. Imagine that you're at work, and not just your boss, but your boss's boss comes to your desk. And he's very particular about how he wants you to do your work. And he's asking you to cross a moral line. But times are hard. Who wants to be financially vulnerable? And the temptation might be to do what he says and act against your conscience. Or imagine you're at school and not just your teacher comes to you. What about if the principal comes to you and has a one-to-one with you and tells you what you need to do, but you feel you're being asked to compromise your faith? Would you have the courage to stand up? What these two women, Shipra and Pua, do is even more courageous. They weren't just financially vulnerable. The king of Egypt could have clicked his fingers and ended their lives. And yet, they're bold enough, strong enough to disobey him. Here's a wonderful, challenging picture of what we might call civil disobedience, isn't it? It's done very gently. There's no kind of uprising afoot. But they're so convinced of what they know of God that they won't compromise. The Hebrew midwives, they feared God. And so they did not do as the king had asked them. The Hebrew women saw things differently because of God's involvement in their lives. They didn't just see problem babies and problem children. They saw precious children. Maybe they knew enough of those early Genesis stories to know that these babies, whatever their ethnicity, were made in the image of God. That's a powerful idea that every human being is made in the image of God. It's in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Let me give you an illustration about why that's important. I have a phone with me. And uh, I have lots and lots of pictures of my family on my phone. Now imagine at the end of the service, as you maybe join us for lunch, you, um, you want to see a picture of my family, so I show them to you. And imagine that I see your face curl up in disgust when you see a picture of my family. Or even worse, and it, it wouldn't be one of you guys, it's probably one of you guys. <laughs> imagine you were to spit on the picture of my family. At one level, it doesn't matter. 
This is a waterproof phone. How about that? I could just wipe your saliva off. But imagine you've got pretty persistent, toxic saliva. Imagine it, it gets into my phone. Destroys my phone. I had a Coke can blow up in my hand luggage on the flight over here. It totally shredded my camera. Apparently water and sugar is not good for cameras. I'm grieving. But imagine your saliva shredded my phone. You know what? It doesn't matter. The pictures are backed up in the cloud, baby. You're not going to touch them. No harm done. And yet, symbolically, what have you done? That you would spit on a picture of my family. What does that say? What you do to the image is a marker or an indicator of how you feel about the ones who are being imaged. Does that make sense? What you do for Robert or don't do for Robert is a way we demonstrate how we feel about the one that Robert images, how we feel about God. I think these Hebrew women knew that. I love the fact that they're women. You know, the rest of the story of Exodus is, is huge. It's geopolitics. It's, it's the people of God versus the Egyptians. It's their God versus Yahweh. There are plagues. There's, there's tidal waves and, and, and paths through uh, the ocean. There are armies and, and devastation. And yet the story begins so small. With just five women that take a stand against a mighty, mighty king. Shipra, Puah, the two midwives, Miriam and Jochebed, uh, the two uh, relatives, and even Pharaoh's own daughter. She's moved by compassion, even though it's an enemy child. Even though she's heard all the noise about, these Hebrews, they're going to overrun us. Somehow she is moved by compassion to welcome someone else's child into her family. Friends, I believe that fostering an adoption is one of the most powerful mini parables we can give of the gospel. We heard it this morning as Ellis, Pastor Ellis led us in worship that we are adopted into God's family. You know when God adopted you, he didn't have a list. Many people have a list when they're looking at Robert. They said they want a baby They want a perfect child from a nice background. They don't want any physical defects. They don't want any emotional baggage. Just want a nice baby. Most of the time when people come forward for adoption, they're looking for a child to fulfill all their dreams. You know what? That isn't how God adopted us. You know, God wasn't lonely. It wasn't that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit were bored. What should we do now? No, they had all the love that they needed. They had all the creativity they needed. God didn't adopt us because he needed it. That's the doctrine of the aseity of God. We had nothing to God. He's complete in himself. God didn't adopt us because he needed it. God adopted us because we needed it. And he took us in our brokenness. Some of us were older, some of us were younger, some of us have got terrible backgrounds, some of us have got physical challenges, some of us have got emotional baggage, but God said, it doesn't matter. My love is sufficient for you. Come, 
Join the family. I'll love you as my own son and I'll love you forever. Friends, imagine that we were to demonstrate that kind of love to children that are waiting. In my country, we have around 5,000 children that are waiting for adoption. In your country, in America, right now, there are 100,000 children waiting to be adopted. One hundred. I'm not talking about going to Malawi or going to, uh, to China to pick up a child, although God may lead you that way. I'm talking about 100,000 children right now here. And you're thinking, Chris, it's going to cost me a fortune. Do you know what? If you adopt from foster care, it is completely free. You don't have to raise any money. 100,000 kids waiting right now. Now, you know what? That doesn't mean we need every Christian to adopt 10 children. Did you know that? You're a big church. But if you add in the rest of the churches around America, you know what? We don't need every Christian to adopt 10 kids. I've worked it out. You probably just need one new adopting family per church. And we can meet the entire need. Can you imagine that? Imagine what that would do to these children. They would receive the love that they need, the love that God intends. Can you imagine what that would do to our congregations? You know what? God told us what he was looking for when we come to worship him. It's a famous verse. It's become a life verse for me. James 1.27. True religion that God our Father accepts as pure and blameless is. Kicking worship band? You've got one. You guys were awesome. I loved it. I loved the motor engine. I loved the tattoos. I loved the, the, the guitar solos. Beautiful. Absolutely wonderful. A gift from God. But that isn't enough, says God. That's not the extent of our worship. True religion that God our Father accepts as pure and blameless is amazing, biblically sound preaching. Also a wonderful gift that you have. Your pastors have been to some great seminaries. Some of them I've been involved with. It's not my fault they're any good, but it's good that they're good. That's not, that's not a bad thing, but it's not the extent of our worship. We've been saying throughout this service and for many weeks now, haven't we, that, that our worship is not contained within the walls of this building. What happens if we go beyond these walls? Well, James 1.27 says, True religion that God our Father accepts as pure and blameless is... To care for widows and orphans in their distress. So if we did it, if we the church rose up and adopted the children or fostered the children that need it, that would start to give God the kind of worship he asked for in the first place. And if you're nervous about James because you've got a Lutheran background or something, we'll have a read of Isaiah 1, Isaiah 58, Psalm 68, Deuteronomy 10, 18. It's not just a one-off. But imagine what it would say to our nation. Do you know what they're saying about us? In my country, England, do you know what they say about the church? They say they only care about themselves. They're only fighting for their own rights. They're only interested in, in, in not allowing certain people to marry. That's what they're about. They're just against everything. Here's a way we could show people what we're for. We're for the grace of God poured out unrelentingly towards us. And to everybody that's in need. This is about the love of God. For the whole world. Imagine the difference we could make. I wonder if you're able to. Why don't you stand as we just. 
Uh, have a little prayer and then I'll hand on to the team to take us on further. Father God, thank you that everything that we said about Robert is true for everybody here. That you see potential as you look at these lovely people. Thank you that you love them compassionately. Thank you that they're not here by accident, but they were knit together in their mother's womb. Thank you for that. Thank you for your adopting love that accepts us even in our brokenness and our sinfulness. But Lord, may your love, love not stop with us. Lord, would you fill us up with your love that we might pass it on to those that are in need. And Lord, we pray for the difference to be made in children's lives, in our church's life, but also in our national life. Lord, we long that Jesus receive the honour that he deserves and he gets it as we offer him the worship that he deserves. In Jesus' name, amen.